Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal, on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, Leon Wieseltier and I commemorate the 10th anniversary of the catastrophe in Syria and use that occasion to talk about American foreign policy over the past 10 years and going forward. We're commemorating two terrible things. We're commemorating the destruction of a country and a society um, by itself and others uh, and by the worst imaginable means, a genocide, a war in which children were tortured and killed, rape was systematically used as an instrument of war, mass expulsions, mass graves, uh, a refugee crisis that has destroyed this, I mean, a refugee crisis that has destabilized countries all around Syria and countries in Europe and has been a significant factor in the resurgence of fascist politics in Europe. Uh, We're commemorating a moral and strategic disaster in Syria. And the second thing we're commemorating is the failure of the West, and specifically the United States, to do a damn thing about it. Uh, We're commemorating the worst episode of bystanderism in the West since the Second World War. Uh, We're commemorating lies and prevarications and evasions and, um, and, and deceptions practiced by Western governments and the American government on itself and on its, the American people and on the world as regards what could be done in Syria and what should have been done in Syria. So those, I think, are the two uh, things we're commemorating. It's a very, very dark anniversary. How long after Dara'a did it take before it was clear how enormous and horrific this was going to be? It didn't take long to understand what was happening and what was going to continue to happen if it was not stopped. Uh, It began in a town called Dara'a as a democratic rebellion in the Arab Spring style. Uh, and the rebellion spread to other Syrian towns and cities, uh, and it was it was it was savagely repressed. Uh, and then it became clear that the Assad regime would do anything it had to to stay in power, that it would do whatever it could to transform a democratic rebellion into a sectarian conflict, which it succeeded in doing, and that the Assad regime would have the resources and the assistance it needed for its evil purposes, uh, coming to it from Iran and Lebanon in the form of Hezbollah troops, and then eventually in the, uh, from Russia. If it starts in April 2011, by 2012, 2013, there are people um, warning about what's happening, uh, lamenting what's happening, 
and calling for American action. From the very beginning, the American government engaged in this utterly self-fulfilling prophecy, or rather self-fulfilling policy, of saying that nothing could be done. Uh, but it did not take long. You did not have to be a, a, an Arab scholar. You did not have to be an Arab speaker. You did not have to be an international relations expert. You did not have to be a student of military affairs to see what was happening. When you say that people were calling for American intervention, were Syrians calling for American intervention? There were all sorts of people calling for American intervention. Uh, of course, there were Syrians. Well, I mean, there were all sorts of things that people called for. They called for a no-fly zone because one of the, uh, the in the beginning, the primary advantage that Assad had um, was his complete dominance of the skies. And there was the idea that that could be, that advantage could be eliminated by means of a no-fly zone. That's when we heard that it would be just so, so hard to, to put up a no-fly zone, when in fact we'd done so successfully in other areas of the world uh, previously. Uh, people called for uh, meaningful support for the Syrian Free Army and for certain groups or that admittedly had ties to um, unsavory elements, jihadi elements in Syria, but were fighting the Assad regime. Uh, people called for the use of American force on the ground. I was one of the latter. Uh, I mean, I, I wound up in the course of this, this incredibly heartbreaking debate, I wound up calling for almost anything that I thought could be done. Uh, uh, but I was not alone. We were in the minority because the war in Iraq has decreed, you know, that that never again in this lifetime will American troops ever set foot on the ground in a Muslim country, no matter how many innocent people and innocent Muslims have to die, and no matter how <coughs> much it would be in our strategic interest to do so. Why is it that there seems to have been just an overwhelming uniform disinterest and in intervention on the part of both administrations? Oh, there are a whole look. There are a whole variety of reasons. I think that um, it, it, there is the view that the reason was that the American people were tired of wars in the Middle East. I'm sure that the polling data supports some of those contentions. Um, my own view is that um, whereas a war should, of course, enjoy popular support, not even a war, whereas even a major military operation, which is something far short of a war, if by war one means the, the you know, the, the dystopian example of Iraq and shock and awe, uh, whereas military operations abroad should have support in the population, uh, there are many things that the American population does, has not supported that various presidents have gone out and rallied support for. So there is that, that, that word, the L word, which is leadership. Um, and people who, people who have strategies, long-term grand strategies with objectives and aren't just responding to events in a crisis management mode, uh, 
and people who have values and principles that require them to draw, if you'll pardon the expression, red lines mm -hmm. around certain evils, such people um, are prepared to exercise leadership to persuade the American people that the course upon which they propose to embark is both a just course and a useful course for us. This was a case that could have been made for an American involvement of Syria, which would not have required anything remotely resembling an intervention of the order of magnitude in Iraq. Um, but Obama had absolutely no interest in making such a case, uh, in my view, because he had certain presuppositions, certain, certain premises about Americans, America's place in the world that were sacred to him. Now, you ask me what they were, and I'll tell you. Um, I think Obama believed that the United States has no right directly or indirectly to be significantly responsible for an outcome in another country. I think he believes that any such American engagement or involvement or intervention is either a weak or a strong form of American imperialism and draws not upon the best traditions of American engagement with the world, but upon the worst traditions of it. And there have been crimes and abuses that we have committed in our long history of engaging and intervening in the world. I think Obama was especially uh, dogmatic about the notion that we would put American troops in a Muslim country uh, because he believed for, for uh, owing to Iran in 1953, owing obviously to the war in Iraq and so on, that we had some prior guilt towards the Muslim world and should just leave it to hell alone. When in fact, the, the significant American interventions of recent decades uh, in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Libya, which Obama presided over, but it was barely an intervention and the object of the intervention became to end it. But in Libya, uh, in Kuwait, um, and even in Iraq, I mean, it depends on what you think of the war. Um, all of our recent interventions were designed to protect Muslim populations from either from aggressions by other states or human rights violations by their own regimes, their own governments. But Obama was not about to use American force in the Islamic world. Obama, I believe, also thought that the United States had 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 a kind of had prior guilt to three countries in the world. This came out of the, we'll call it the progressive foreign policy culture of the 1990s. And the three countries in which the United States had sinned dreadfully were Vietnam, Cuba, and Iran. And if you look at Obama's foreign policy, you will see that the only countries in which he acted in any significant, meaningful way were those three countries. Uh, he, um, he, made the, he, he made peace, as it were, with Cuba, which I have nothing against, except he, he demanded nothing of the Cubans in the way of political liberalization, nothing, zero. And the repression in Cuba got worse after our historic opening 
to Cuba, which the Obama administration treated as an event of the greatest historical significance, as if the end of the Soviet Union was just an important step on the way to our new relationship with Cuba. And in Iran, it wasn't just that he sought a nuclear deal that, in my view, postponed the problem but didn't lay a glove on it. He sought a nuclear deal as the centerpiece or the opening move in what would become a detente with Iran. Uh, and we are still having that debate. We are still having that debate. Um, you know, the, the Iranians, we, we refused in any significant way to confront the real problem about Iran, which is not just its nuclear capability, but its regional imperialism. Iran now controls Syria. It controls Lebanon. It has Hezbollah as a, a, a trained army of proxies for its interests in the region. It is in Gaza. It is in Yemen. Uh, it is in half of Iraq. It is in, not militarily, in Caracas. It is in Managua. Uh, and what on earth is the Iranian regime doing in all these places? Why was Qasem Soleimani on the border at the Golan Heights? Uh, and these are problems that we simply refuse to engage with. And the, the, the great, and all you put all of these assumptions together, and I'm sorry for this long lecture, but what you get is an American president standing by during the worst genocide of our time with people on his staff who made careers out of warning against genocide and believing that there was nothing that could be done, that should be done, that, you know, and pretending that they couldn't sleep at night. Maybe they weren't pretending that they couldn't sleep at night, but the difference to the Syrians about whether they could or could not sleep at night was negligible, to put it mildly. You didn't mention Afghanistan. Um, I assume you just put it, you would include that on the list, but I mention it because um, I wonder if the recent developments with the Biden administration pulling all of the troops out of Afghanistan on the um, the anniversary of September 11th, does that mean that Biden's, would you, can you say yet, um, are you hopeful or not optimistic about Biden's alignment with Obama on um, his view of America's place in the world? Well, but Biden is complicated. He's not, his gut, his gut is not Obama's gut. <clears throat> And neither, for that matter, is Tony Blinken's. But um, but let's first talk about about Afghanistan for a few minutes. Um, this was inevitable. Biden meant it in the campaign. Um, this was going to happen. I think it is a terrible mistake. I don't like the idea of forever wars. Uh, because sometimes you have to maintain a military presence for a very long time in order to keep the peace and to prevent atrocities and to serve the strategic interests of the United States and its allies. So uh, the fact that people were losing patience, losing patience is not a powerful argument uh, when it comes to almost any realm of life. Um, I think that uh, if we 
get all our troops, all our troops are out by September 11th. I think the bloodbath will begin on September 12th. I think that uh, the Biden administration is now trying to convince its critics and the government in Kabul and the millions of good people in Afghanistan that the withdrawal of our troops not only does not signify the end of our relationship with Afghanistan, but that there are even ways to use to, to, to use military force from a distance as a deterrent to the Taliban's plans. And in the event that the Taliban acts upon its plans, and its plans are obviously to wait us out. Uh, I mean, that you don't have to be a genius to understand that, that if we position troops and bases in countries near Afghanistan, and if we fly bombers from the United States or we fly bombers from aircraft carriers in the region, that the effect will be more or less the same, the deterring effect. I don't buy that. Um, I think there is no substitute for being on the ground. Uh, I saw in the Times yesterday, the Times described the costs of the Afghan war as, quote, staggering. Uh, I immediately wrote to a military friend, a very distinguished soldier uh, who had served in Afghanistan and asked if this was correct uh, because, you know, the number of our war dead in Afghanistan was, is 2,400. I looked at what it cost and then I tried to compare it to the horrors that were avoided and to what was accomplished for the people in Afghanistan, sometimes not entirely with their cooperation, I have to add, which is the real, really terrible truth about this story. Um, and he said to me, the costs are not, rem the costs are not remotely staggering. Um, and again, I don't mean to be heartless or callous about this. Uh, those soldiers did not die in vain. I worried that our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the spirit of it may give people the impression that their lives were wasted. They were not. They fought not only in the cause of American security, but they fought in the cause of human rights, and they helped uh, a society try to gain its gain to get its bearings and achieve some measure of social and political and economic and even moral progress uh, for itself. Um, these were heroes, uh, but I did not see, given the geostrategic. Uh, stakes in Afghanistan and given the fact that we are about to abandon many, many good people, many, many good people to a terrible fate that the withdrawal of our 25, or I gather it's really 3,500 troops, uh, is, is anything but an expression of American impatience and, uh, and fed up -edness. And that's really not an adequate strategic or moral motive for making important historical policy. Was the Taliban gaining power even with the troops there? Look, the Taliban was, there was a time when we had preponderant force and they fled to the hills. Um, as, as we began to diminish our presence there, they came out of the hills. They've been consistently emboldened. In the past year, they have been shockingly emboldened. 
uh, anyone who believes that the Taliban is not intent on remaining the Taliban is a fool, uh, is a fool. Um, and they have given no indication, unlike other groups that some tried, sometimes tried to persuade us that they were actually nice now, um, this has not been the case with the Taliban. I mean, look, when it comes, the primary security, of, national security objective of the United States is to defend the American homeland. So, and that was the, the proximate cause of our incursion into Afghanistan, to destroy terrorist groups that not only plotted, but successfully carried out spectacular attacks on Americans and the United States. Uh, in the course of that incursion, the only way, rather the only way to achieve the goal, the national security goal, was to change the political situation on the ground. Because what made, what get, because the safe haven that Al-Qaeda found in Afghanistan was provided to them by a regime, by the Taliban, and there was no reason to think that as long as the Taliban were in power, that if not Al-Qaeda, that other sinister, uh, stateless, anti-American terrorist actors would find a similar uh, sanctuary there. Um, but the fact is, so in, in, in the course of defending ourselves, we wound up with a policy, you know, people talk about collateral damage. These were collateral benefits. We, we had a policy of collateral humanitarianism, if you will. Uh, in order to protect ourselves, we had to try to fix and improve and help and better and protect the people and the, the, the social institutions, the government of Afghanistan. And that too became, that too, I believe, was a worthwhile and noble objective. Uh, and we'll see what happens on September 11th, uh, on September 12th, rather, uh, I, I see no reason, there's no empirical evidence on earth that I know about to indicate that the Taliban will, um, will proceed with their plans to take over as much of Afghanistan as they can, to topple the Ghani government, to reimpose the theocratic regime that they had imposed upon the country when they did rule it, and so on. So, at least because of where we found ourselves a year over the past of the course year when the Taliban was already gaining power, um, we would have needed to have, if we wanted to do the job well, we would have needed to put more troops in rather than keeping it the same or pulling them out. Because would you say that that's right? You know, there's an, in there's an interesting debate about... Um, about that. There's an interesting and debate. I'm asking about this that. question because I think often the answer that people give, even if they think it's not that, even if they wouldn't give the Obama answer, which is we shouldn't have our hands in anywhere, we should just keep our hands to ourselves, um, that it's a, it's, it's never going to be enough. It's sort of a Sisyphean effort to try and intervene in other countries. Um, because it's always, in order to get the job done well, you're always going to need more effort. I don't think that's the case. It depends on the country and the situation. There is another term for Sisyphean efforts, and the term is struggle. People don't like to think about struggle, uh, certainly in our foreign policy, but even in our 
daily lives in America, we like results, uh, quick results if possible. Um, but we don't like to be ignorant of outcomes, which makes all sorts of sense in all sorts of situations. Uh, the problem is that there are urgently important situations in which we have to act in some way if, if, in, about which we cannot know or, or confidently predict outcomes. Um, I think that, as I say, there is an interesting debate about how many troops would be necessary for what. The idea that we would have to reoccupy Afghanistan seems ridiculous to me. And by the way, in Syria too, I have no doubt that in 2013, 2014, uh, in the years prior to Russia's invasion of Syria, Russia's exploitation of the strategic vacuum that Obama left them, uh, that 5,000 American troops would have changed the entire situation. Uh, now, I'm not a military expert. I don't believe that 5,000 troops is remotely the war in Iraq. I don't believe it is a shocking military intervention. I don't think that mission creep or, or unthinking escalation is always the case, has to be the case. I don't believe in slippery slopes about almost anything because slippery slope arguments, basically um, all they teach is that because you might have to do more, you shouldn't do anything. And that's not how one can responsibly live a life or run a country. Um, so we can have this debate about how many troops would be necessary to achieve, to, to deter the Taliban, or if the objective is to defeat the Taliban, or to protect a genuine uh, renovation of Afghan society, though that latter objective has proven especially exasperating because, as I said earlier, uh, it would, would have been nice to have uh, the cooperation of various Afghan actors uh, who instead lost themselves uh, in internecine Afghan tribal politics. Um, but I think that we don't, we're not even at the point now where we can discuss in good faith the question of how much force would be needed to accomplish which desirable objectives. We have decided that the projection, if you'll pardon the expression, of American force abroad is in itself a historical mistake. A wait, blunder. wait, wait. I thought you wouldn't put Biden in the same bucket as Obama. When you say we've decided... Well, I'll get to Biden's general orientation if I'm talking about Afghanistan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Now, we can get to... Um, look, Biden's a very interesting case. Uh, in the essay to which you refer in our next issue... Um, or in the, the imminent issue, um, I write there, and forgive me for quoting myself, that, that many, many decades ago, I realized that if I wanted to understand anybody's worldview on uh, international affairs, on America's place in the world, um, on American leadership or the lack thereof in the world, uh, I had to know really only one thing about them. And that is, was there primal scene World War II, or was there primal scene Vietnam? If their primal scene, meaning if, was World War II, meaning if their, their, their outlook on those questions was formed by the precedent of World War II, 
then, and I was one of those, obviously, um, then I knew that they were not, they did not think that all American intervention abroad was imperialism, that they knew that American power could be used for good and for great good, that they believed that the United States had an, a historical obligation to lead strongly and forthrightly in the world, that other countries in the world look to the United States for such leadership and so on. If I discovered that their primary scene was Vietnam, and this was uh, more the case with my generation, I was an exception for biographical reasons, um, then I knew that they had different premises and different assumptions. Uh, Joe Biden is a product of the post-war mentality who at some point in foreign policy converted to the post-Vietnam mentality. Uh, that's the best description I can give of him. Uh, I don't have a clear fix on him in foreign policy. I think that um, he, he certainly lived through and understood uh, the good and the bad uses of American power abroad. I think he's had more than enough experience in government not to adjudicate this question solely on the basis of one episode. And the truth is, if you really want to have a complete understanding of these questions, you've got to look at both World War II and at Vietnam. You've got to look at both Bosnia which, by the way, is a word I never heard Obama utter, and Iraq. You have to look at the full picture, and what you see is a picture of mixed results. And I think I write this, too, in this essay. Um, I regard, in, this, in this lifetime, in this imperfect and nasty world in which we live, and for the fragile human beings that we are, I have always regarded mixed results as a very good outcome as a very good outcome in a friendship, in a book, in a marriage, in a foreign policy. Um, and mixed results are a lot. And, uh, and so I think that Biden is, he's talking, he's a certain, under a certain amount of political pressure, but I don't think it's just that. Um, he's a post-war liberal who's talking sometimes, who's acting right now like a post-Iraq progressive. Um, and those are, in their assumptions, contradictory. Um, I understand that he's acting not only as a post-Iraq progressive. In Europe, with Russia and with China, he's been, I think, terrific. Um, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and you can ask me about that if you'd like. Well, the thing I wanted to say first is the reason I asked about um, the number of troops in Afghanistan, and I, I also was going to ask you a similar question about Syria, is because as you sort of nodded at earlier, the catechism about Syria has always been that it's too complicated, that nobody understands what intervention would even look like. Um, it's just too much. It's too much of a mess. And you said that that has been the sort of the party line since for the past 10 years, since the beginning. There are two things to be said about that. One is that it used to be much less of a mess, and we didn't, even when it wasn't such a mess, we called it too much of a mess, and it became more of a mess because of our inaction there. And secondly, 
most of the things that the American government tries to accomplish are mind-crushingly complicated. There is nothing, you know, in the sublunar sphere more complicated than healthcare policy. Nothing. To the point where ordinary Americans cannot understand it. But that rightly, its complexity rightly did not deter the people who sought to reform it and revolutionize it and make it more just and equitable. So, you know, saying that something is complicated always makes one sound very smart in these discussions, but nothing, there's nothing significant that isn't complicated. And denouncing something as complicated is usually the expression of a prior decision not to want to do anything about it. Uh, there are no simple problems, at least not the important ones. We haven't talked, we haven't said anything about the Trump administration. Um, Isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah. but we, probably, we should. Um, I think because yeah. you just mentioned China um, and we should mention the Uyghurs in this episode. And also because right before the pandemic threw the black cloth over the planet, um, we had mm -hmm. the white helmets here. Yeah, we did, um, yeah. And and they said something that shouldn't have been surprising, which was that they'd prefer Trump um, to to whoever they thought was going to. I mean, I think it was I think it was probably Bernie at the time looked like. He, well, they certainly preferred him to Obama. Certainly to Obama, yeah. right? Um, yeah, well, let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, the only, I hate beginning sentences this way, but the only, or one of the very few good things that Trump did, if you'll pardon the expression, <laughs> was he initiated an adversarial American attitude towards China. He did it in the coarsest, most demagogic way, which was not good. What provoked him, of course, was trade, was money, um, if it had been about anything more sophisticated, he either couldn't have understood it or wouldn't have given a damn about it. But he did turn our attitude at the highest levels. He turned our attitude towards China around, towards what I regard as a perfectly appropriate adversarial stance. One of the very positive developments of those awful four years was that when Trump began to articulate the level of policy, I don't mean his, his vulgarities about China in, in his tweets, I mean his speech, but when he began at the level of policy to articulate this adversarial China, attitude towards China, the Democrats were not noticeably disturbed by it. I mean the Democrats on the Hill and elsewhere, because everybody knows, I, I really everybody knows that we are being attacked by China and rolled by China every day of every week of every month of every year and have been for a very long time. And that Obama's uh, notion that they would play by the rules of the road, uh, even as their desire for uh, ascendancy and mastery became more obvious and even as the world became more Habesian, everybody knows that Obama's nonsense, that Obama's talk about the rules of the road was a fool's paradise. It really was. 
and we get attacked by the, you know, cyber war is, uh, is happening all around us every day from the Russians too. But uh, so when Trump turned on China, I was, uh, my spirit was lifted during, in a period in which it was very hard to find spirit lifting developments in Washington um, by the fact that the Democrats did not, were not um, horrified that he came along and said, ladies and gentlemen, we're being rolled. And so, um, and I think that the Biden people, uh, Biden himself and the, the, the people around him, Jake and Tony, uh, I mean, Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken, uh, were absolutely right to start with China right out of the gate. They really were, uh, and not with the Middle East, because the great power rivalry, which will define the next era of world history, the great power rivalry between China and America has already begun. It's like the climate, it's like climate change. We talked about when the climate crisis will come and it's gonna come and it's gonna come, it's here. It's already begun. And so the Biden administration, I think, is getting it exactly right so far. So far, the policy has been largely declaratory and rhetorical, but the mood has been firm and strong. Uh, and I think that, I think they're right. There remains to be seen what they will, what actions, what steps they will take. For example, will they go to Beijing for the Olympics in 2022? Uh, I think it would be a national disgrace to go to the Olympics in a country that has concentration camps. We did that once in 1936 in Berlin, and those Olympics are looked are remembered by us as a national disgrace for our participation in them, even though Jesse Owens, uh, you know, really gave the Nazis a good show. Um, but for example, there, so there is the question of the Olympics. There, there's the question of Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is one of the most admirable countries on earth. Uh, it is a tiny island surrounded by a, 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 a vast, a vast enemy. It is, it has turned itself into an economic powerhouse, into a technological powerhouse, into a democratic country. Uh, Taiwan is the Israel of Asia. Taiwan is the Israel of Asia. Uh, and we have been committed to the defense of Taiwan. We are now approaching a period, I believe, in which the Chinese, the mainland Chinese, the, Chi the PRC, uh, is going to seriously consider making moves on Taiwan. Because why wouldn't they, given American foreign policy during the last 12 years, and given the newly acquired strengths that they have in the world arena. So we'll see what the Biden people do, but they, they're right to consider this as the, as the greatest strategic consideration now facing the United States. I only hope, I only hope that they follow the precedent of our confrontation with the Soviet Union in the late 70s and then through the 80s, which is to say, I hope that they pursue human rights as vigorously as they pursue their strategic considerations. Uh, I really do. I mean, China is now 
China, Xi Jinping is practicing a Leninist repression. There are concentration camps. The, the, the objective of the Chinese policy towards the Uyghurs is genocidal, if by genocide you mean the attempt to exterminate an identity, uh, oh, oh, etc. Um, and I hope that those considerations are as, as much in the forefront of our planners' minds as the strategic ones. And no one, no uh, one, even even the people who are toughest on China, nobody would ever think of putting of going to war with China. No, look, we're not going to go to war with China. But here's where we are. That's a perfectly good question. We have forgotten how much can be accomplished between passivity and war. Right. We have so many instruments, powerful instruments, available to us. You throw up your hands and say, the problem is too complicated. There's nothing we can do about it for certain things. And then for the ones that you know we have to get our hands around, like climate change and like China, if everybody's accepted that this is something that must be done, you don't say nothing can be done, it's too complicated. You say we have to figure this out. Oh, you mean you meaning one? Yes, yes. yes. Not me, yeah. Yes, of course. If the situation crosses a threshold of urgency, uh, then saying it's complicated is like saying it's pointless. It's like saying, let's do brunch. Right. It doesn't matter that much is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, the situation, you know, racism in America is an excruciatingly complicated situation. I mean, a, a kind of heart shreddingly complicated problem. I don't hear anyone in good faith or in their right mind saying that, oh, it's just too complicated. We've been racist for too long and this is the way America is and it's too deeply ingrained. And I mean, it's all nonsense. One decides what, what is important to one based upon one's principles and one's understanding of one's uh, security and well-being. And when one decides that, as I say, it's crossed a certain threshold of urgency, then uh, doing nothing is, as you know, is not is is doing nothing. You said um, roughly forty minutes ago when we started that Obama's right. Obama's was a self fulfilling policy, um, and that we said it was too complicated and it became so. And so, over the course of this, the current administration, um, is there anything to be hoped for in Syria? Is there, what should, what should one look for? Um, That's a very painful question. There is no uh, way for us right now to reverse the um, Alawite, Iranian, Hezbollah, Russian victory in Syria. Uh, It was a victory for all of them. Thanks in no small measure to our doing nothing. Uh, I think that there are some things we have to do. We have to continue to support the security of Idlib and northwest Syria, uh, which is still unconquered by the villains. Uh, (coughs) And by the way, where a decent number of jihadi villains have taken shelter, but as I said, it's complicated. Or as they say, it's complicated. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think that the only way to begin 
So I think the United States should be exceedingly generous and hospitable to Syrian refugees. Uh, the recent news about the refugee numbers for the Biden administration are shocking. They're below the Obama numbers, uh, and never mind Trump. Uh, you know, it's, we are, I mean, our policy towards refugees from Obama through Trump to now uh, has been shameful, really shameful. Uh, so we have to look after that those people as best we can. Uh, we have to do whatever we can to weaken the Iranian uh, presence outside of Iran's borders and to support the Democrats and democratic movements uh, in Iran. I don't think we should go in and overthrow the regime. I think we have a moral and strategic obligation to support all the Iranians who wish to create a democratic Iran and not to stand by idly as Obama did in June, June 2009, when millions of people came into the streets <coughs> to support democracy in Iran, to protest the theocracy and so on. In June 2009, there were kids in the street in Tehran shouting Obama's name because they wanted our help. And Obama was in the White House musing about our responsibility in Iran after the Mossadegh coup in 1953. I don't know if many of those 20-year-olds in the streets of Tehran even knew who Mossadegh was. The 10th anniversary of the genocide of Syria and of our part in allowing it to happen should be a moment of intense introspection on our part about what our duties around the world are and should be about what the principles are and should be that govern our foreign policy. Um, Syria was one of those cases that uh, broached first principles and primary strategic realities because of the nature of the evil that was being perpetrated there and because of the location of Syria on the map. And because Syria was a place in which both urgent moral and urgent strategic questions were broached, we should take this anniversary and the beginning of the Biden administration uh, to get our head clear about what our place in the world should be. There are obviously, well, in this very polarized in this famously polarized place called the United States, in which all one hears is that nobody can agree about anything anymore. The one thing that everybody seems to agree on is that the era of American leadership of the world is over and that, and that American power should never be used abroad. The one thing that everyone is not polarized about is the end of American interventionism. Uh, I am in a, in a small minority in this regard, maybe even a saving remnant, uh, but my fervent belief is that that it would be a colossal philosophical and historical blunder to believe that. And that we must revisit, we must revisit um, our foreign policy traditions uh, because not all of them 
have been rendered obsolete in the way that many analysts and politicians think they have. Thanks for joining us on the show, Leon. In the third issue of Liberties, Leon has a long essay about Syria and about America's failures there, which is available on our website. Head over to libertiesjournal.com to read it and to subscribe.